we were in trouble. Um, because the boat was anchored, we were getting pooped. Now that's a Cornish fisherman's expression for the waves coming over the side of the boat, broadside, and filling the boat with water. So we quickly decided to pull up anchor and move off. To no avail. Unfortunately, the anchor rope had got caught around the propeller. So we had to free that pretty damn quick. I was working the hand pump furiously and bailing out with a bucket at the same time. Aquanaut was quickly filling with water. Aquanaut. My adventures and misadventures in the early days of scuba diving off the Cornish coast. Written and read by me, James Wheeler. And we knew that the um, Wellstone was an area notorious for shipwrecks, so we decided to keep searching there with the hope that one day we'd find some good pickings. So on this particular day, um, we were going out, we got in, a, a Navy diver, ex-Navy diver, got in touch with us and asked if he could come. He said he'd heard that the Wellstone was pretty notor notorious and he was a bit anxious about going, but he wanted to come, and nevertheless, uh, he decided to go. So he went out on this day. It was a fairly rough day, in fact. It was just Bob Raymond and myself and this next Navy diver. And uh, it took us two and a half hours to steam out there. When we got there, it was quite lumpy. I might say that it's, it's a bit of a spooky place because the Trinity House people had placed a boy there. Um, a red boy uh, with a bell on it and a whistle. So every time the boy was lifted and raised by the sea, this weird whistle would go, and it was quite spooky, and especially in fog. And uh, we nicknamed this uh, boy later on uh, the bank manager, and you'll find out why. So on this day we decided to dive, the three of us decided to dive um, and do a, a good good search of the, of the Wellstone Reef. The view of course was to find any wreckage, but we knew that the city of West, Westminster, which had struck the top of the Wellstone Rock off back in 1923, she was a big ship, she was a grain ship, over 6,000 tonnes, and uh, Apparently she struck the Randlestone Rock in, in thick fog and sank her fairly quickly. So we thought we might find her, but we knew she was in deep water. 
So off we dived, and Bob went over first, I followed, and then the Navy diver came. Well, this was funny because the Navy diver was wearing an ex-Navy dry suit with the old iron collars, and they are very clumsome and very uncomfortable. But what was strange was that, that uh, when we started to, to, to descend, uh, <clears throat> I was just ahead of him, and suddenly something hit me on the head. I couldn't forget what it was. I looked up, and there, there were these lead weights showering down, striking me on the head. And he was losing the weights, which we, which is somehow fixed very badly onto his on his diving weight belt. So he started to ascend again. So I managed to catch up and grab him and put him down with me. And the visibility on this day was quite extraordinary. Uh, I didn't expect it to be so good. And uh, off we went, Bob was well ahead of us. And what a fantastic dive it was. The pinnacle of rock, like a huge fang going up above us. And the whole reef was spectacular scenery. We hadn't gone very far, and Bob suddenly descended further to about 80 feet and disappeared into a gully. So we followed him down, and there was Bob scraping a cannon. He found this beautiful cannon there, and uh, unfortunately the rust was coming off it when he was scraping it. Bob was sort of hoping, as we were, that it would be a bronze cannon, and of course historically valuable. So it must have been lots of other ships that have gone down there in the 18th century, if not before. But that, that dive was a fantastic dive. The visibility and the underground scenery, the, the great big gorges and the huge rocks were just fantastic sight. We hadn't gone very far when we came across the bow of the city of Westminster. It was hanging about 70 feet. 70 to 80 feet on the side of the rock. And uh, um, I don't know where Bob went, he disappeared. The Navy diver and I decided to go down and we went deeper to over 100 feet and found the rest, rest of the city of Westminster. She's well broken up, great big um, ribs, iron ribs sticking out from huge sections of the sand. She was a huge ship and I believe the, the, the story goes that she actually broke her back on the rock before she sank in deep water. It was clear to me that she was too deep to do any salvage on, but what an amazing sight, this huge ship of the city of Westminster. And uh, that was a fantastic dive. We didn't find any more wreckage. We soon ran out of air and came back and uh, climbed on board. As soon as we got on board, the uh, Navy diver was violently sick. He said he was so anxious and so frightened down there, he didn't know how to cope with it. What quite he was frightened of, I'm not sure. But uh, that was a dive on the milestone again, looking for, um, looking for wrecks. As I said many times, the Rallenstone had a notorious reputation for a collection of shipwrecks. 
many of whom have never been found. So we decided that we'd have to continue searching there with the hope of uh, finding more wreckage and being able to do some salvage. So the problem was, however, that diving on the Wellstone, you were limited to 35 maximum, well, maybe 40 if you're lucky, minutes of slack water between the flooding tide and when the tide changes. Because the running tide was a good eight knots and it would have been impossible to dive in those conditions. So the problem was, this vast area was obviously a good, could be good pickings for salvage, but the problem was you were such a limited time to do anything. Indeed, if you found any salvage, you wouldn't have a lot of time to recover it. So we decided that we'd have to dive when the tide was running. If we're going to do our searching, we'd have to do it at any time that we can get out there, even when the tide is running. But of course, this presented problems. In the first place, an eight-knot tide, students who jumped over the side would be swept away from the boat and away from the dive site and never be able to swim back against it. So that would be a, a, a dangerous thing to do, and we decided that we'd have to overcome this somehow. So we decided to make body harnesses out of webbing. We made these bo bo body harnesses, which we fitted underneath our breathing apparatus close to our, our body with swivel, or swivels on them so that when, if we spun uh, we wouldn't get in a tangle with the rope and the rope would be attached to the boat of course and handed out as the diver went down so the diver would be continually attached to the rope but that wasn't quite so easy as we thought so Bob was the first to try this and he got kitted up and went over the side and he was, he was away in second, the tide took him away on this fast running tide on the Wellstone that day. So what we had to do was to pull him along the side of the boat until he got to the anchor, which was secure, of course. And then he would pull himself hand over hand down the anchor through the tide. Now I might add that you have to go head first against such a running tide. If you turn your head, the tide would take your mask off. Uh, whip your mask off your off your face, so it was so strong. And we found out, or Bob discovered, because he was the first to do it, that the the worst of the running time was at about twenty feet. Below that, it got a lot lot uh, fast, lot lot slow, I should say. And um, when you got to the bottom, it was almost non-existent. So it was interesting that the. The, the tide was running so close to the surface, between 18 and 20 feet at its fastest point. So Bob down, down he goes and um, he does his search and he's down for a good 35, 40 minutes and the rope was almost extended to its maximum. He covered a big area. And then the fun begins. We had to, Bob's surface so far away from the boat, we had to pull him in. Oh my goodness, what a battle that was. I didn't think we'd ever do it, try and pull a bob against this tide. And by the time Bob got back, he was absolutely exhausted. Now it was my turn. So I got kitted up, roped up, harnessed up, and over I went on my own. And this is a dive I'd never forget for two reasons. Well, uh, first of all, the tide. It was awful. 
it was hell on earth that day and I shall never forget it and I shall always remember uh, trying to dive in that kind of tide it was almost impossible they pulled me to the along the side of the boat to the anchor I went hand and hand down over the anchor rope and found myself in a survey soon at about 60 feet in a huge forest of kelp now kelp is, is a very huge seaweed the stems were as thick as my arm and the and the leaves and blade that we called it the crown of the kelp seaweed about six feet above my head and I was pulling myself hand over hand against the, along this forest of thick kelp it was a fantastic experience it was like swimming through an open forest well I hadn't gone very far I didn't find any wreckage at all. I hadn't gone that far and suddenly I felt that I was no longer alone and I couldn't figure out who would come down with me. I felt someone was following me because something pulled at my flipper and I couldn't think what it was. And then suddenly, emerging right next to me was this huge head of a conger eel. My goodness, it gave me a startle because... Uh, his eyes were bigger than ping-pong balls. And I thought, my goodness, this is a monster. And um, he kept following me all through the forest, appearing and then disappearing, and then appearing again. And he followed me the whole way. And then suddenly he was gone. I think he tried to have a nibble at my flipper, thinking that maybe I might be a tasty morsel for him. He obviously came out to feed. It was the biggest Congo wheel I've ever seen. And uh, I can tell you quite an experience. Then I, I left part of the forest and went a bit deeper. And it got a bit darker. I was about 80 feet. And suddenly another weird experience. I thought I could hear music. In fact, I was sure I could hear music. And I could actually identify it. It was Tchaikovsky. It was classical music. And I thought, what am I doing? Diving in 80 feet off the Hunterstone, listening to Tchaikovsky's classical music. And it got so loud, so clear, so distinct. I stopped and looked all around me, couldn't see anything other than the rocks. And I thought, my goodness, what, what's happening to me? Perhaps I'm losing my mind. So I was about 80 feet. I'd found no wreckage again, and I thought I'd covered quite a big area. But my air was running out fast. I was at 80 feet, and I decided to surface. And then the fun began. Raymond had to pull me in, and the tide had started to run, obviously. And I had to struggle. There's no way I could have used my snorkel. I had to use my breathing apparatus in my mouth against that running tide, it was running past my face like a river. And I tried to turn my head and then he lost my mask, my face mask. Um, my arms were so tired, exhausted, aching, holding on to the rope. As Raymond pulled me in 
and it took him, he reckoned it took him 14 to 15 minutes to pull me back to the boat in that roaring tide. It was absolutely terrible. I remember it as hell on earth and the thought of being swept away with that. I'd been finished up out on the Wolf Rock Lighthouse 10 miles away in no time. Well, I clambered on board, totally exhausted, and first thing I did, of course, having taken my air bottle off, was to look for the ship, for a boat, anywhere in the vicinity. There was nothing in sight, nothing even on the horizon. So how could I figure out what this world music was? I thought there would be a yacht, passing yacht, playing music, um, when it was passing over my head when I was diving. Not until life. There was nothing there, and I can't remember anything so weird. I never know to this day where that music came, music came from, whether it was inside my head or whether it was a passing boat. And to this day, of course, I will never know. But a very weird and rather spooky experience on my death on the Ronald Star. I want to talk now about something which I shall never forget, and I've called it the day to remember. And my gosh, what a day it was. We continued to search for wrecks on the Mellon Stone because we knew that would be the best place to go. But we abandoned any further dives using our harnesses and rope diving because it was just impossible. In any event, we could never have lifted any salvage in those, those tidal conditions. It would have been suicide, especially even the thought of using explosives in those conditions would have been impossible. So we went out again to the Ronald Stone on this day. It was a lovely sunny day, but the wind was a bit sharp, and we steamed out there. And uh, again, we had to wait for slack water. We calculated it right, um, and Bob goes over as number one diver, and um, he came back after 35 minutes, having found absolutely nothing. And we were getting a bit fed up with this, all this diving on the stone. We proved to be a place for shipwrecks. We hadn't found any other than the city of Westminster. It was now my turn to dive as number two diver. And uh, I was a bit concerned because the sea began to pick up a bit, quite a bit lumpy. And uh, it was beginning to go turn southeast which was a very nasty wind. So anyway, I decided to go and dive, I did, and uh, covered quite an area, going through some kelp forest again, and I managed to do it just before the tide turned. And um, came up having found absolutely nothing. So we were both very disappointed, but that disappointment was added to by the problems that followed. The southeast wind had come up from Biscay, and my goodness, hadn't it come up quickly? We were anchored broadside to the sea, and the southeast wind was really very blowing, blowy now. I was carrying up the force five, if not six, and uh, we were in trouble. Uh, because the boat was anchored, we were getting pooped. Now, that's a Cornish fisherman's 
expression for the waves coming over the side of the boat broadside and filling the boat with water. So we quickly decided to pull up anchor and move off to no avail. Unfortunately, the anchor rope had got caught round the propeller. So we had to free that pretty damn quick. Bob was hanging over the side, the stern of the boat, with Raymond holding his ankles, leaning right into the water to unwind the, the, the anchor rope from the propeller. It seemed to take him an age. I was constantly concerned about getting seriously pooped. I was working the hand pump furiously and bailing out with a bucket at the same time. Aquanaut was quickly filling with water. We were in danger, I'm not joking, we were in danger of sinking. We were completely stuck with this anchor against this southeast wind. Well, thank God, Bob freed the anchor rope and we started up the engine and set off, turned around back towards Penzance. But that was a disaster because all the way across the coast towards Penzance, we were faced with a southeast wind broadside to our boat and every wave that came over began to fill us up and we were in serious danger of sinking and losing all our kit, all our equipment and of course losing the boat and the thought of being picked up by the lifeboat of divers was something we just couldn't bear the thought of. We were obviously being watched by the Tolpedon uh, um, Coast Guard station on the Tolpedon Penrith uh, coast he must have been keeping an eye on us and he must have been worried and realised that the southeast wind can be so nasty. It comes up very, very quickly from the Bay of Biscay. So we had no alternative but to turn around. We turned right around and then headed towards Land's End. The only way we could get shelter was to go around Land's End and of course around the other side of the peninsula it would be an offshore wind and flat calm. But all the way, the three of us were bailing and trying to steer the boat at the same time, bailing out with buckets and hand pumps. I was up to my knees in water in Aquanaut, and she'd been filling fast. If we hadn't bailed as much as we did in such an exhausting way, she would have gone down on a thunderstorm. We'd have lost her and everything that we owned. So thank goodness, and we got round in shelter just round Land's End in time, round the headland, and the sea was virtually flat calm offshore. So where could we go? The only port we could go was St Ives. All the way up the north coast, round to St Ives. And that was one heck of a journey. And we did this. And to do so, we had to go up along the coast, which he didn't know that well. And uh, because of the distance involved, and the boy, whether we had enough fuel to get us all the way to St. Dives safely was another issue. So Bob decided to go close in shore as he possibly could and risk going through some shallow water and hoping that we could make, make it. All the time, by the way, we were still bathing because Aquanaut had so much water in her, it was unbelievable. I really amazed me that our boat didn't sink. And uh, my goodness, what a scare it was. So we made our way up the north coast, all the way, all that late afternoon, all the way to St Ives, and what a long journey it was. 
when we came into St. Ives Bay, um, of course, we we hadn't realised that the tide was going out, if not right out. And I had this stupid idea that maybe we should be able to enter Hale Harbour, which was a safe haven, and go up the Hale Channel. So Bob thought that would be okay. We didn't know how much water would be there. We put the photograph on, the echo sander on, and we had 20, 30 feet of water to of depth. So we thought, well, we could make it. Not on your nelly. We hadn't got very far, and we soon ran out of, out of water. We got into very shallow water, and then we struck the sand. Um, <laughs> the wind had taken us broadside on the sand, and Aquanaut was stuck. Uh, my goodness, we couldn't go anywhere. She was broadside to the shore and being danger, danger of being rolled over. So we had to get two of the big oars out, try and push ourselves off, and we did that. And in the process, the rudder broke. So we were now rudderless in St. Ives Bay uh, towards late evening, getting dark. Um, so we managed to do it. We got ourselves off, and with Raymond steering, Bob and I held this long oar on the stern by attaching it with a rope, and it used as a rudder, and we steamed into St. Ives, St. Ives Harbour, only to find that when we got to the harbour entrance, there was no water. So she grounded right outside the, the lighthouse on St. Ives Harbour. And we were stuck there, and... Uh, so we decided the only thing we could do was to throw the anchor out and uh, secure her and then uh, come back when the tide was coming in and bring her safely into the harbour. But that was hours and hours away. So what could we do? We decided just to go and go inshore. We jumped off, left Aquanaut where she was. We jumped into water, up to our waist in, in seawater and waded ashore into the harbour and the first thing we went to, of course, naturally, was the pub. We walked up to the pub, drenched right through with salt water, uh, and uh, sat down and were very welcomed by the locals. They thought that we, uh, we had been in trouble, and we certainly were. To, uh, so that was a day to remember. We had to wait till late that night when the, the tide came in, and we, we got someone to take us out in the boat. Some chap who was very kindly helping us. And we got on board Aquanaut, started her up, and brought her into St. Ives Harbour and uh, fixed her up there, tied her up there in the harbour, in the middle of the harbour, on a buoy, which uh, was free there at that time. And we put the what we call the legs. The Aquanaut had big wooden legs which could bolt on the side, so when she was ever going to, in, in a dry harbour, she would sit, stand upright and not roll over. So we put the legs out, bolted them on, and then um, decided to uh, get home somehow. I think we caught a taxi, I can't remember now, so long ago. But it took us a long time to bail at Aquanaut. She was still carrying a lot of water, a lot of seawater, and some of the stuff was even floating on the deck when we got those knives, I can tell you that we were, were in trouble. How we survived that day on the Vunderstone without losing Aquanaut, losing the entire boat, all our equipment, everything, I shall never know. So why does it happen? Well, 
for some reason, neither of us thought about looking at the weather forecast before we left. If we had, we would have realised that the forecast was pretty deadly. It was a 478 gale, east southeasterly wind, the worst possible wind for Mount's Bay, and so many wrecks have been wrecked in that southeast wind. It comes across from Spain, there's nothing to stop it hitting the southeast, the southwest coast of, of, of Mount's Bay, and many a shipwreck before and since have been caught in these terrible southerly, southeasterly gales. So it was a close call for us, a silly mistake. We should have looked at the weather forecast before we left. We, it could have resulted in the loss of everything that we had and the end of our diving on the Rollstone. And, uh, you know, it's a day which I shall not forget. And it's something, a lesson, a learning curve that we should never do that again. So Rollstone that he had us, like so many other boats, Fishing boats, trawlers, so many boats have been lost on the Rollstone and it nearly had us, Aquanaut. I just want to emphasise that uh, all this diving on the Rollstone was always a high risk. It is a notorious place. And we've learned now that this was hell on earth. I am, in my age since, I've never wanted to go back there because I know it's hell on earth. The sound of that weird boy blowing, the bell ringing, the, the seas unpredictable, and the currents absolutely treacherous. It was a treacherous place to dive, and uh, I shall never want to uh, dive there again, to be honest. But we did, of course, and uh, um, that will be my next story of how successful we were diving on the Rollstone in some pretty awful conditions. But I remind any diver who wants to go to the Rollstone, you take a risk. It is hell on earth. <laughs>